If you have your Bibles, why don't you open up with me to uh, the letter to Philemon, which is located at the towards the end of the New Testament, uh, and that is where our study uh, finds us today. And uh, as you are turning there, uh, biblical counselor uh, Ken Sandy uh, tells the the story of he and and three friends uh, backpacking through the the Bare Tooth Mountains of Montana, uh, and it was. It was late spring and the streams were running high as uh, the snow melted uh, from the mountains. Uh, They were about 10 miles into those mountains. They came to a stream where the bridge had been washed away. There was only one place where they had an opportunity uh, to cross the frigid water, uh, but that would entail leaping from rock to rock uh, with the risk of falling into the rapids. And among the four friends, there emerged uh, three ideas on how to uh, how to address this situation that they had come to. One friend saw the stream as, as being too dangerous, said, hey, we don't want to risk getting swept away uh, by this uh, water uh, or uh, just you know dying of hypothermia because it's so cold if we fall in. Uh, so we just need to turn back uh, and pursue another trail, another way of crossing this stream. Well, another one of the friends said... Uh, that, hey, we should, we should just cross the stream, just wade right across it. He saw it as a test of their masculinity, uh, right? If, uh, they should just, uh, go across regardless of the danger, uh, and regardless of how cold they might be for several hours later, uh, as, you know, stream water, that's melting ice. So that's not warm. It's not a hot spring. It's a very cold stream. But the last two friends saw, saw the stream as an interesting challenge. One that was difficult, but not unpassable. They studied the rocks leading across and they, and they realized that, hey, there's a, there's a gap in the rock. So they went and found a, a tree that had fallen down in the woods and they used it, uh, to, to build a little quasi bridge between two of the rocks where there was a gap. Uh, and through a little bit of teamwork, uh, the four of them crossed the river, the stream together, uh, without getting wet, without anybody getting hurt. Uh, they just had to use a, a little bit of teamwork and working together and put their minds to this. And many people view conflict the way that these four friends viewed the stream. Some people want to run from conflict, to avoid it at all costs. They see it looming on the horizon and say, okay, let me turn around and go a different route. Others see conflict and they say, all right, let's do this. Uh, And they just plow ahead regardless of the consequences. They're willing to face the conflict, but they don't address it in a a way that is uh, wise. They do it in a way that damages others. And still others view conflict as an opportunity to, to do some problem solving, uh, an opportunity to, to apply the gospel to a situation and bring glory to God by the way that we respond to conflict. And how we view conflict is also coupled with how we view people in other people in conflict will also transform how we respond to it. Uh, and it will guide our uh, responses to them and to the situation. Now, if our perspective of a conflict and others uh, prompts our responses, then we need to understand how our perspective of a conflict will impact uh, our uh, how we proceed with our peacemaking conversations. For instance, now when we when we feel like someone has harmed us unintentionally or unknowingly, they didn't realize what they were doing. We will generally approach them with grace, with compassion, with understanding. Uh, if we come with that perspective of that this was a, this was an accidental offense that they 've committed against us, but on the other hand, if our perspective is that somebody has hurt us intentionally 
or that they have done so knowingly, uh, then we come with a completely different attitude and mindset. Grace goes out the window and we come with thoughts of, of vengeance and justice, of, hey, I will get what is deserved to me. This person will see that they are wrong. So our our perspective of conflict and of others in that conflict is so important if we are going to pursue peace. We don't want to throw gas on the fire uh, in our peacemaking efforts. We want to to resolve. We want to, we want to bring reconciliation when it is needed. And and the apostle Paul understands that. And so as he writes to Philemon in the, in these verses that we're going to look at today, he's trying to broker peace between two men. Uh, a slave owner, Philemon, and his runaway slave, Onesimus. Onesimus had stolen from his master and then run away to Rome. But when he was in Rome, he came uh, into contact with the Apostle Paul. He heard the gospel, believed the gospel, and now he is a Christian. He has been transformed by the grace of God. He's no longer what he used to be. And now Paul is sending him back to reconcile with his master. And as we come to verses 15 and 16 in this letter, we're parachuting down into the middle of Paul's appeal. Well, let's, let's back up a little bit. Let's read this uh, beginning in verse 8, as Paul is going to make his plea for uh, Onesimus. Paul says, Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul... An old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus. I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this, perhaps, is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. See, what Paul is doing in these two verses, in verses 15 and 16, he's trying to broaden Philemon's perspective. He wants Philemon to understand not only uh, how to resolve this conflict, but how he needs to view and interpret this conflict. Uh, say, hey, you know what, maybe the Lord is at work here to do something greater in the life of Onesimus and in your life, Philemon. He's working to bring these two men together who are now Christians. He's trying to reconcile slave and master. But more than that, he's now trying to reconcile two brothers in Christ. And as we study these two verses, we will see how our perspective needs to change, how we need to see the bigger picture of conflict oftentimes, that we need to see not only uh, our present situation. It's easy when we're in conflict that we can't focus on anything else. It seems like conflict is all-consuming. Uh, and we can't see outside of it, but we we need to zoom out and understand the bigger picture of our conflict, uh, and to see the bigger picture of God's redemptive purposes for our conflicts, for our our trials, our disagreements, and even for the sins uh, that are that we commit and the sins that are committed against us. So, how should we view 
conflict? What should our perspective be as we face trials with other people? And that's, again, I'm not a prophet, but I can guarantee that conflict will arise in your life. Uh, It's just a a matter of fact because we live in a world tainted by sin and we are all sinners. So it's, it's no wonder that conflicts arrive so regularly. But how should we view this conflict? Well, this morning, we'd like, I'd like to see uh, two redemptive lenses uh, that we must put on in order that we might rightly view and interpret our trials and conflicts so that we might resolve those conflicts in a God-glorifying way. We need to, to see these two lenses and put them on like a, play, a pair of glasses and begin to view life through these two lenses. And, and the first lens that we need to look through uh, is seen in verse 15, that the lens of God's redemptive orchestration. Now we need to view our conflicts, our trials through this lens if we are going to make peace that is beneficial to others and glorify the Lord. Look with me again at verse 15. It says, for this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever. See, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul is going to begin begin some inspired uh, speculation on what God might be doing in this trial and in this uh, situation that has transpired between these two men. Paul is saying that that perhaps all of this has been according to God's plan. Uh, that God knew that, that Onesimus would depart, that he would uh, run away to Rome where he would just happen to run into the Apostle Paul. Uh, and that when he was there in Rome, he would place his faith and trust in Christ alone. And that he would become a Christian. And when the grace of God works in us, we become something new. We are a new creation. And that is exactly what has transpired in Onesimus' life. Onesimus' sin against Philemon and the resulting trial in Philemon's life, right? When someone steals from you and then runs away, that's a, that's a trial. We don't know how much Onesimus stole from his master, but we know that he did steal. Uh, and when one person sins against you, that becomes a trial in your life. So here we have this this sin and this trial being sinned against. And now how is Paul going to bring these two men back together? And he tries to, again, widen Philemon's understanding. He says, For he was parted from you for a while that you might have him back forever. This contrast of, hey, he was gone for a time, but now you can have him back for eternity. Let's look at this a little bit more. Uh, Notice as in verse 15, it says, "You know, for, For perhaps this is why... It says, he was parted from you for a while. And the, the, it's interesting of, if Philemon had, had run away, or I'm sorry, Onesimus ran away, you would expect Paul to say that, that Philemon, or Onesimus, he parted ways with you. But, but it doesn't say that he parted ways, that he parted from you. It says he was parted, meaning that there was some other force, there was some other power who, who seemed to be pulling Onesimus away at that time. He was part of it. It was, it was a passive action on his part. Implying that, hey, God is, is behind the scenes working in this situation. That this wasn't a, a shock to God, a surprise to God when Onesimus ran away. This is according to, to God's plan in order that, that you might have him back forever. So gone for a time and ultimately have him back, received back. Uh, the idea of that word of have him back is is receiving back or being paid in full. Now Jesus uses this word uh, in Matthew chapter 6 verse 2. He says, thus when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. 
their reward. Now, the, the idea of, hey, they've been paid in full with the praise of men. They won't get anything from God. Jesus also, again, in Philippians 4, 18, where Paul says, I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Paul's point here is to Philemon of saying, hey, this was a short-term loss on your part, but a long-term gain. Onesimus stole from you and ran away for a time, but now uh, I'm sending him back to you, and now you are gaining him back forever. Because they're no longer just slave and master, they are now brothers in Christ. And the two will be reconciled with one another through Christ forever, and they will now share a common fellowship with Christ for eternity. Paul wants Philemon to widen his perspective of his conflict with Onesimus. He wants him to see what God is really doing in and through this trial and how God has already used it for good in the life of Onesimus. Hey, look, this brought Onesimus to faith and how God will continue to use this for their good. Uh, And yes, uh, this is right. God does have redemptive purposes for every conflict that arises in our lives. Some of you may be saying, well, I don't know about that. I'm in some conflict right now that, that's not very fun. It doesn't seem to be doing good for anybody. Sometimes when we are in the midst of conflict, it feels that way. But oftentimes as time passes and, and progresses, we are able to look back. And what do they say? Hindsight is what? 2020. We see things clearly and we see this over and over again in scripture that God is able to use all things together for good. A famous passage, Romans 8 verses 28 and 29. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Now the, the, the idea is that God is always working in our lives to make us like who? Jesus. That, that we might become like our savior. Uh, more and more as life goes on. And and God uses trials and our own sin and the resulting consequences and other people's sin against us in our lives to mold us and shape us into the image of his son. This is seen throughout scripture. For instance, in the story of Joseph, God used the sin of Joseph's brothers and the trials that Joseph faced when he was uh, a slave and in prison, right? Potiphar's life wife lied about it. Then uh, one of the king's officials uh, forgot about him, left him there in prison for another two years. Those are, those are difficult trials and sins that were committed against Joseph, in addition to his brothers selling him into slavery. But listen to this, what, what Joseph says as he looks back, as he's just about to reveal himself to his brothers in Genesis 45, he sees not their sin, but God's providential hand working through all of his life circumstances. 45 beginning, Genesis 45 beginning in verse 4 says, So Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For you, for God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you 
to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. So we see that God was working in Joseph's life through his suffering, through his brother's sins to to save lives, to save the lives of many people through the Joseph's wisdom. Uh, Egypt and the surrounding nations were able to be fed during seven years of famine. Think about that. Sometimes God uses our trials and circumstances to to be a blessing to others and to work in the lives of others as well. Elsewhere, in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, the Apostle Paul reflects back to his own suffering and acknowledges that the Lord used his suffering to keep him humble. He talked about these uh, being caught up uh, to heaven and these, these visions uh, in the first part of first, 2 Corinthians 12. Uh, and then he says this in 2 Corinthians 12, verses 7 through 10. He says, So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. At the end there, what what is the Apostle Paul saying? Hey, I rejoice in these conflicts that arise. Because what do they enable him to do? To be weak so that whose strength may be on display? Christ's. Uh, so that he may depend upon Christ and show forth the gospel. And as we look at our own lives, uh, if you were to, to look at how the Lord has worked in your life, I am sure that most of us have had somebody else's sin against us work out for good. If you were to continue to evaluate your life, I'm sure you can see how, not that we this gives us license to sin, but you can see how you sinned and then in the grace of God, he turned that on its head. And your sin... He, he gave you a benefit for that. He used your sin for good. We also see that in the life of Judah uh, in Genesis. Of uh, Jude, Through Judah's sin uh, came the line of the Messiah. You can look at that in, in Genesis 38. But God is able to use all things together for good. For some of us, our, our sin brought us to a point where we were so low that we hit rock bottom and, and that got our attention. That brought us to the point where we were willing to, to hear from God. We were willing to, to hear the gospel. And then the Lord brought somebody to share the gospel with us. We believed and repented and placed our faith in Christ. And that's a lot like what I would imagine happened with Onesimus here. Runaway slave, stole from his master, went away to Rome thinking he's going to have a great new life. And then life was probably even more difficult as a runaway slave in Rome than it was under his master back in the small town of Colossae. Lord brought him to that low point and then brought the Apostle Paul to share the gospel with him, brought him to faith. See, for others, it also might be uh, that that someone's sin against you puts you on a particular path. Maybe someone's sin against you closed an opportunity, closed a door. Now you were you were forced down this path unknowingly and uh, dragging your heels. 
But I'm sure you can look back now and see that that path that you initially didn't want to go down, the Lord used for good in your life. And that's that's true of my own testimony. Uh, there were uh, others, people's sins against me uh, that that directed me uh, a certain way. And that, that path that I initially did not want to go down brought me into contact with, with a Christian family that, that took me in as a college student, uh, that provided for me, that loved me, that cared for me. And as a, as a college student who hated Christianity, didn't want anything to do with it because of what I had grown up in, uh, that family is exactly what I needed. And it was other people's sins against me that put me on that path to meet that family. So as I look back now, there's nothing that I would change. Say, I will gladly endure all of the the trials that the Lord carried me through even before I knew him. Because that was his way of bringing me to him, of bringing me to that point where I needed to to interact with others who could share the gospel with me. And that is what Paul wants Philemon to see here. Say, look, look back at all that you've been through and look at how God has used this trial, this circumstance to bring Onesimus to faith. And he, he left you for a time, but now you have him back forever. And it is God's habit to redeem evil and use it for good, to flip sin, suffering, and conflict on their head and to use them to grow us instead of to destroy us. And you know what the ultimate example of this is? It's the cross of Christ. The, the ultimate uh, injustice in all of history That Jesus was innocent and yet condemned to death. In his trials, he was declared innocent three times. And yet he was still condemned to death by Pilate because Pilate wanted to appease the Jews. Pilate said, okay, I'm going to wash my hands of this, but I'm going to kill him anyway. What a dark day that would have seemed for the disciples of Christ, right? During that, during that, those hours of his arrest, his trial, his crucifixion, his burial. And then imagine how dark that Sunday would have been for them. That their master, that their, uh, their teacher, the one who had been living life with them every day for the last three years, was, had been murdered and now is buried. But again, time and truth go hand in hand. And as time elapses, we can see the way God has worked in the past more clearly. And then Sunday comes... And we see exactly how God redeemed the most tragic event in human history for not just a little bit of good, but for an infinite good, the greatest good in all of human history. That now whoever would believe in Jesus and look to him in faith, acknowledging their sin, casting all of their cares upon him and saying, I cannot save myself, I need to trust in Christ. Because he has conquered death. He has risen from the grave. And that is what is demonstrated. That is how God loves to flip sin, suffering, and conflict on its head and to use it to sanctify us. Paul wants Philemon to understand that, to to get that into his head. He wants to see how this conflict can work for the good in Onesimus' life and in Philemon's life. Because now what is Philemon going to have the chance to do? To demonstrate the gospel. That is what he's going to, to do. But, but he want, Paul wants Philemon to begin to look through this lens of God's redemptive orchestration. That, that God has been orchestrating all of these events to bring about his desired purpose and his desired goals. That Onesimus would come to faith and then that these two men would be reconciled. And as we, as we seek to resolve conflict in our lives, we need to begin here. That conflict is not an obstacle to be avoided. It's not uh, a, a uh, an excuse to 
to, to fight and, and sin, but it is an opportunity to glorify God. That every time there is a conflict, we get to uh, live out the gospel, to put it on display. And we get to see how God will use that in our lives. And we must see and understand that God uses conflict also to reveal what's really going on in our hearts. Right? Uh, when when conflict arises, uh, we get squeezed. And whatever comes out, comes out because that's what was inside. Uh, and that's what conflict does. So when, when anger comes out of your heart in the middle of a conflict, why did it come out? Well, because that's what was inside. Uh, why, why does a godly response come out? Well, that's because that's what was inside. That's what conflict does. And we need to see that that conflict does that. And God wants us to see what comes out. And he's going to use that for good in our lives. The, the biblical counselor that I quoted earlier, Ken Sandy, in his book, The Peacemaker, he says, every time you encounter a conflict, you will inevitably show what you really think about God. Now, are you willing to, to trust him? Are you willing to demand vengeance in your own time and in your own way? Are you the arbiter of justice now? Or do you trust God that, that he is righteous, he is holy, and in time he will make all things right? We must also be convinced that God will use each conflict that arises in our lives to sanctify us, to make us holy, to make us more and more like his son, Jesus. Ken Sandy again says, as you worry less about going through conflict and focus more on growing through conflict, you will enhance that process and experience the incomparable blessing of being conformed to the likeness of Christ. God doesn't just want us to go through conflict. He wants us to grow through conflict. And and so do we have that perspective? Is this lens present in our life that we are able to look at our present circumstances, our present conflict, to see, okay, I need to not just respond how uh, and pursue my own goals, but I am in, called to, at this moment, pursue reconciliation for the glory of God. What's God's agenda here, not my agenda? How are you at exercising faith and trusting God in the middle of conflict? And then how are you at looking backwards in time? and seeing God's faithfulness in your own life? How are you looking back and seeing how he's used your sin or the sins of others against you uh, to bring growth in your life, to sanctify you? And I would I would encourage you to do that today. Great exercise to just journal. What has the Lord done in your life? When, when you have those God moments, of you, you've seen his provision or you've seen how something that somebody else meant for evil, he has used for good, write that down. And then go back to it, read it, share it with your children and your families and use it as as a prayer journal to go back to God and echo praise and thanksgiving to him, seeing his character on display. We must view our conflict through this lens of God's redemptive orchestration. And that's the that's the first lens in our glasses that we see in this passage. Uh, and the, the second lens that we are to, to put on, that we need to view conflict with, is the lens of the gospel's redemptive order. We must view our conflicts and trials through this lens as well. And this lens is seen in verse 16. Or we can backtrack just a little bit to that last statement in verse 15 because it's really an explanation of that last statement. That you might have him back forever. And then this is how he has Onesimus back. No longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant. As a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more 
to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. See, the gospel has a redemptive order to that. And let me, let me explain what I mean. The gospel message is offered to every single person equally. Uh, God doesn't show partiality in, in, uh, to the rich. He doesn't show partiality to a particular ethnic group. The gospel is offered to everyone for free. And all who believe the gospel are then found to be equals in Christ. That is the redemptive order of the gospel. Everyone is now on level ground at the foot of the cross. Paul has already made that point. And again, remember that Colossians, written to this same church, Paul's already addressed that. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 11, says, Here, in this new humanity that the gospel creates, here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Similar passage in Galatians chapter 3. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female for all. You are all one in Christ Jesus. What Paul is saying is that he's laying out this truth for for Philemon that that he is now, as Onesimus comes back to you, he is now more than a slave to you. You've received him back, uh, no more a slave, but a uh, more than a slave, no longer a slave, more than a slave, as a beloved brother. And when Paul says that, we, you, you, I can almost hear the, the Colossian church let out a, a, a corporate gasp of what did he just say? Did, did, did Paul just say that slave and slave owner are now brothers? See, in the Roman Empire, the empire was built uh, and it was an economy based upon slavery. It's estimated that about a third of the population of the city of Rome were slaves and up to half of the population of the entire empire were slaves. Rome was also the center of the slave trade and it's estimated that a quarter million slaves were sold there each year. And similar to the way Jews would classify people as into two categories, you were either Jewish or you were not Jewish. Uh, you were a Jew or a Gentile. The Romans classified people as either being a slave or being free. That, that, was, that was just their, their method of thinking and categorizing people. And slavery in the Roman Empire was connected more with a legal and social standing with race because anybody from any race could become a slave. Uh, so slavery didn't have a particular ethnic uh, standing to it. And slavery was the removal of all legal status. A slave had no legal standing in Rome. So... Male slaves were, in essence, never able to become men. What do I mean by that? Well, every aspect of manhood, what is it that makes somebody uh, a, a man and brings them to the point of, of maturity? All of, the, all of them were, were legal actions. So for somebody who has no legal standing, you can't do a legal action. So you can't enter into a contract. You can't, you can't marry because that's a legal act. You can't become a, a father and govern somebody else because as a slave, who do your children belong to? Your owner. You don't have personal autonomy as a slave. right? That's, that's the basis of manhood. I am, I am my own man now. So male slaves were in essence denied every aspect of masculinity because they, they couldn't perform any legal acts on their own. Marriage was a legal act, and while there were substitutes for marriage, uh, there was always this idea that, hey, at any point in time, either spouse could be sold into slavery. 
or one of their children could be sold into slavery. So this elimination of any sense of, of rights uh, established a, a slave culture of one one uh, theologian and historian says that it was a culture of death, a culture of living death for slaves. You had no rights in the Roman world. In the Roman world, slaves were viewed as property. They were, they were not treated as people. And then Paul comes in this letter and says that you have this runaway slave. You have him back no longer as a slave, but more than a slave as a beloved brother. And Paul has used this language of, hey, a, a brother to describe some of his own relationships. He's used this word uh, to describe Timothy in verse 1. It says, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother. He uses this same word in verse 7 to describe Philemon. It says, For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. So Paul is using this relationship, or this word to describe his own relationships, and now he says, Hey, you slave and you slave owner are now brothers. The same way that Paul has this relationship with, with Timothy, with Philemon, he has this same relationship with Onesimus. And furthermore, he's going to say, all right, now Onesimus and Philemon, you have the same relationship. This is powerful, powerful language that Paul is using to describe. And then that little phrase in verse 16, he says, that you have received him back as a beloved brother. And then he says, especially to me. This is this is a su- superlative. Of, it's a way of overstating something to, to, to draw emphasis. Of. It's, it's the highest point of the extent of anything. A better translation is most of all, or above everything else, Paul is saying that Onesimus and him have this relationship where they are beloved brothers. And this is what the apostle is saying too about a slave. And, and you can imagine, uh, again, this setting, this letter is being read to the entire church. And if you were Philemon, you're kind of like, hey, I got a personal letter from the apostle Paul. How cool is that, right? That what an honor, right? That the apostle would take time to write to me personally. But then this, this letter is, is read. And in this letter to you, to Philemon, being read publicly, Paul is commending the slave of Philemon and commending him in such a way that he's heightening, uh, again, this is, this is superlative hyperbole of what he's saying here of, hey, that he is a beloved brother, especially to me. This would have been humbling for Philemon. You know, he would have been on cloud nine because he's gotten the letter, but then Paul keeps commending his slave, a slave that he's in conflict with. You kind of see this drama unfolding here. But what's what's even more amazing after after using this superlative to say, "Wow, especially to me, he he is a, a beloved brother, especially to me." Paul takes it up a notch. He goes one level higher in his next phrase. He says, "Especially to me, but how much more to you?" So he's kind of like saying, "Hey, most of all, he is a beloved brother to me." And then he seems to be saying, okay, now even more than most of all, he's a beloved brother now to you, Philemon. Of saying, wow, look at the, the love that you should now share with one another and how your relationship should now be with each other. And, and it's amazing of 
Paul puts himself on the, 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 I guess, these two men, Onesimus and Philemon. The way Paul describes it here is that now they are on equal footing in their relationship with Paul, and even more importantly, in their relationship with Christ. They are equals in Christ. And, and Paul, after going these superlatives of, you know, more and then more than, uh, or most and then more than most, he identifies how this, the areas of this relationship, or the realms of this new status that Onesimus has as a believer. Because especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh, that's realm number one, and then realm number two, and in the Lord. That first realm in the flesh refers to the physical earthly relationships. Say, hey, now you guys are reconciled and received back together again in an earthly relationship. And then that second realm is the idea of, hey, when we gather together and stand before God, we have a a fellowship and a communion, our, our spiritual relationship. And that is what Paul is emphasizing in that second phrase, in the Lord, uh, that they now share a fellowship and so we have these these two realms, and which one supersedes the other? The, the spiritual supersedes the earthly, because in an earthly relationship, what are they still? They're still slave and master. Paul doesn't set him free and say, hey, you need to set him free. He says, hey, you're still slave and master, but now your spiritual relationship as brothers in Christ is going to supersede that. That's why Philemon can't continue to treat Onesimus as a, as a slave because he needs to, to be, treat him on the basis of his brotherhood in Christ. That is now the basis of their relationship. Christian slave and Christian master are still slave and master in Roman society, but now they must interact with one another first and foremost on the basis of their spiritual relationship as two brothers on equal footing with their heavenly father, as two servants kneeling before their heavenly master. That is what they are now called to do. And and what's amazing here, as we, as we look at this letter, and, and Paul sends Onesimus back to reconcile, he never instructs Philemon to set Onesimus free. He doesn't do that. He doesn't command him in that way. And in times past, people have have used that to make an argument for slavery. And that's like, we're missing the point here. In other more recent times, this letter has been used to speak out against slavery, trying to to force Paul into saying, yes, he he was demanding that Philemon set Onesimus free. And it's it's just not here in the text. So we have to be careful not to go beyond what is written in either way. Paul is not... uh um, you know, calling for Philemon to be uh, the one who releases uh, Onesimus, and he's not uh, advocating a pro-slavery position either. What Paul is doing is he is addressing two men. He's addressing two particular men who are in conflict, not trying to, to address the institution of slavery in the Roman world. But what Paul does make clear is that now, when these two realms overlap, the, the earthly and the spiritual, which one takes precedence? It's the spiritual. And he's saying, hey, now, even though he may still be a slave to you, you don't treat him like a slave. You treat him like a brother in Christ. So Paul's not addressing slavery, but it has many implications for slavery because the spiritual supersedes the earthly. 
I think this is the biggest takeaway that, that we have to understand from this verse. That we, we constantly live in two different realms. The, the earthly and the spiritual. And the spiritual must always supersede the earthly. And this is especially important when it comes to resolving conflict. See, as Paul appealed to these two brothers to be reconciled, two believers, he instructed them to view each other as equals in Christ. Even though they were on different social and economic footing, different standings in society, he says, no, you are equal before the cross. And as we seek to resolve conflict with other Christians, in our minds, what do we tend to do in the middle of conflict? How do we think about that other person? How wicked they are, how despicable, how wrong, how how messed up, all of the above, right? But how should we think of them? We should treat them as brother in Christ. If Philemon could have done that with Onesimus, said, hey, this is my slave, I can tell him to do whatever I want. He is my property, but Paul says, no, no. You treat him as a brother in Christ. Your spiritual relationship with him is far more important than your earthly relationship with him. This means that that as we begin to pursue reconciliation, we need to see ourselves and others as sinners in need of God's grace. We are sinners saved by God's grace. And not only saved by God's grace, but we continue to sin, so what do we still need? God's grace to, to work in us and through us in our approach to conflict, in our approach to our trials and our sin. And our spiritual pride must depart from us. And we must approach one another as equals, willing to hear from one another, willing to confess sins to one another, and willing to extend forgiveness and repent together and turn back to Christ. That is what we see here and what Paul is saying to Philemon, you need to widen your perspective. Don't get caught up into all of the the small things in a conflict, but see, how is the Lord going to use this for his redemptive purposes? How is he going to use it for good in our lives? How can I put the gospel on display right now? These these two lenses, these spectacles, the, the glasses that we are to look through, this transforms the way that we view conflict and the way that we interpret conflict. Let's talk a little bit more. What does this look like to put these glasses on? Well, when we look at conflict through the lens of God's redemptive orchestration, again, our our understanding widens so that we begin to see God's purposes and it, it changes our thinking. So it's not just how can I be right, but how can I bring glory to God in this situation? And And we may not, in the middle of conflict, see how all of this is going to work out. All right, that's the really difficult part to exercise trust in the middle of a trial. But that's what we are called to do. To say, Lord, I know you have a redemptive purpose for this. I know that this didn't happen uh, on accident, Lord, that you weren't shocked when this happened. You knew this was going to transpire, and you are, have allowed it to come into my life because you want to use it for good. And we need to approach conflict with the understanding that God is able to use it to sanctify us and to expose our hearts and reveal the idols that have taken up residence there. And we have to approach conflict as an opportunity to live out the gospel by confessing and repenting of any sin that we've committed and by granting forgiveness for any sins committed against us. Uh, I loved that when I was working uh, at an elementary 
school, Christian elementary school. I couldn't have done this at a secular school. Uh, but I loved working the playground during lunchtime because there was constantly conflict on the playground. Uh, somebody wasn't being nice to somebody else. They wouldn't let them play or, you know, somebody did something, pushed them down, all of these things. And I, I loved it because whenever the kids had conflict, who would they run to? To me, as the playground supervisor. Uh, and every single time there was conflict, that enabled me to share the gospel with those students. Because I would talk about, all right, hey, yeah, a sin was committed, and we'll talk about that. But you've sinned against one another, but who else have you sinned against? God. And that, that is far more serious than any sins that you've committed against each other. And so we need to confess and ask for forgiveness uh, from one another. And it's amazing. All the, all the kids understood that. That when you hurt somebody, you need to say sorry, you need to confess, ask for forgiveness, and I really focus on, no, you need to look at what you've done, because they always want to come up, well, this person did this. No, what did you do? Uh, what's been your role in this? And just, I would just walk them through that, and they would understand that. I need to say sorry, I need to confess, ask for forgiveness, and then I would get to say, all right, now we get to do that with the Lord. Now we get to need to, need to go and ask God for forgiveness. But you know what? There's no reason that God should forgive us, except what his son Jesus Christ has done. That's why we get to go to God and to ask for forgiveness because the debt that we created with this sin has been forgiven in Christ. I love doing that. Every single conflict was an opportunity to put the gospel on display in the lives of those children. And what was really neat was over the course of many years beginning to see the students apply those principles in their life without me being there to walk them through it. They began to to appropriate these principles of, okay, hey, I need to confess, ask for forgiveness, uh, and seek to glorify the Lord in this conflict rather than just being proven right. That's what it, what happens when we begin to look at conflict as an opportunity, uh, as something that God is able to use in our lives rather than just something that we have to suffer through. And then secondly, we, we need to look at conflict through this lens of the gospel's redemptive order. That we will understand, when we look through this lens, we'll understand that as we resolve conflict with someone, it's more important for us to glorify God by loving our neighbor than it is for us to get our way or to be proven right. Again, we've talked about that. Well, how, how different would our conversations, our peacemaking be when we approach saying, all right, Lord, I want to glorify you rather than get uh, my spouse to say you were right and I was wrong. Or usually you were right and I was less right. Uh, but, but we need to, to see and understand that as sinners in need of God's grace, mercy, and forgiveness, we are also called to be sinners who extend grace, mercy, and forgiveness. John Wesley uh, was sailing to America with, with a general named James Oglethorpe, who was the founder of the colony of Georgia. They're on their way to America from England, And one day on the voyage, Wesley heard an unusual noise in the general's cabin. uh, And he stepped in to inquire, uh, hey, what's all this ruckus about? And the general explained that he had caught a servant who had drunk up his wine. He said, "But, but I will be revenged on him. I have ordered him to be tied hand and foot and to be carried on board the man of war that sails with us. The rascal should have taken care how he used me, for I never forgive. And Wesley calmly looked at him, replied, Then I hope, sir, that you never sin. The general was stunned at the reproof, and he set the servant free. 
See, we have to understand that we have been forgiven much and now we are called to forgive much. And if we are unwilling to forgive, what should we expect when we sin against others? Because we will sin against others. When conflict arises, we have to to view it from God's perspective, that God's going to orchestrate and use it for His glory and our good. And we need to see others through the lens of the gospel, that we are equal with them in Christ. And may we apply those principles, may we put on those lenses so that we might be used to resolve conflict in our own lives and in the lives of others. Let's pray. Almighty God, we we come to you acknowledging that you are sovereign, that you are in control over all things. And Lord, we thank you that you are a good and loving God, that you are completely sovereign, that you are able to, to use all things to work together for our good, and that good being to conform us, to shape us, to make us like your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you that you are able to use the sins of others against us for good, or that you are able to use our own sin for good in our lives, that you are able to to use conflict, suffering, every single trial that we face, Lord, you are able to use it for good in our lives, to expose our hearts, to sanctify us, to allow us to put the gospel on display. And Lord, we long to do that. Lord, we long to be a church We long to be Christians who put the gospel on display whenever there is conflict. Lord, we long to glorify you, to point others to you, and to extend mercy, grace, and forgiveness to others because you have so richly lavished us with those very same things. Lord, your grace, your mercy, we don't deserve it, but you have given it it to us. We don't deserve your forgiveness, but you have purchased it with the blood of your son. So Lord, we thank you. We praise you. We ask that you would use us as ambassadors this week to go into our community to be peacemakers and reconcilers, not for our glory, but for yours. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.